So the night before I was going to leave, he took me aside and he says, son, I've been listening to all those people giving you advice. I just want to tell you one thing. Remember what family you come from. So when you're there, anything that's going to bring shame to your family name, don't do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. I am glad to be with you all. I am Peter Ibrahim, and I have an amazing guest for you all. Our parents are our first role models, our superheroes. And in Assyrian, I've often heard that The mother, our mother, is our first school. During this episode, we discuss many topics from upbringing to racism, Palestinians, Marxism, philosophy, the Assyrian question, but one thing stood out, one theme kept coming back to my mind. And in the introduction, you heard Lincoln recall a conversation between himself and his father just before he left to Kansas State. We strive to keep our parents happy, but I believe a parent's love surpasses disappointment. And I think what Lincoln recalls about his father's advice can speak volumes to first-generation and second-generation Assyrians in the diaspora. Dr. Lincoln Malik is the oldest surviving child of Yonatan and Dali Edgar and was born in Baghdad, Iraq, August 27, 1942. His father Yonatan was orphaned during the Assyrian genocide between 1915 and 1918. Lincoln distinguished himself in his Jesuit high school in Baghdad and was accepted to Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas to study civil and structural engineering. He earned his bachelor's degree in engineering from the University of California, Berkeley. Later, he worked in Chicago for a number of years but returned to Stanford University in Palo Alto to gain his master's degree and engineer's degree at Stanford University. He then went back to UC Berkeley to earn his PhD in structural engineering. Lincoln became a respected engineer, known all over the country and the world, and was able to start his own engineering firm, Advanced Engineering Consultants. Despite his success in his professional life, his heart and passion has always been in political and social justice activism. He was one of the first people to protest against the Vietnam War in Chicago early on and continued when he returned to Berkeley. He had notable roles in several campus movements, including the Black Student Union and the Palestinian Cause. As he left college, he decided to direct his passion towards his beloved Assyrian community. He founded and for many years ran the Northern American chapter of Zawa, Assyrian Democratic Movement. They also worked closely with Zawa in Iraq, and he made several trips back to our Assyrian villages in Iraq to bring physical as well as intellectual help to the people and the cause. And later he would found the Assyrian Aid Society. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 982 9516. Thanks again, Tony. And now, here's Dr. Lincoln Malik. Good afternoon, Lincoln. It's a pleasure to be in your company. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad to meet you and to have this. Yeah, this is a great opportunity for the Assyrian podcast. I know we've been looking for unique and dynamic guests that have a story. I know that you have a lot of stories to share with us, so thanks again. Thank you. I hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> so let's start off with an easy question. Yeah. The listeners want to know, who is Lincoln Malik? Well, I was born in Baghdad in uh, 1942. I know that's also the year that uh, Bernie Sanders was born, and I'm supporting him for president right now. Oh, you already given him an endorsement. I have, <laughs> and I also have donated to him. Excellent. And, uh, yes, my father's name was Yonatan, but uh, he, he, he was orphaned during the occurrences to our people in, like, 1918. And he grew up in an American orphanage. 
And then when he was 16, they came to him and told him, we're going to close the orphanage. So what do you want to do? He said, well, I don't know. They said, well, there is a Turkish guy from uh, North Iran who's looking for somebody to come and help him take care of the animals. He has a big stable and so on. So my father said to him, I am from the Malik family, and you want me to, to go and serve the people that killed my caused my father and mother to die. You want me to go work for them as a stable boy? They said, well, what do you want us to do? He said, well, send me to Baghdad. And he said he never knew why he said Baghdad. Mm. And they just put him on a truck, sent him to Baghdad without a penny in his pocket. And the truck drive dropped him by the a marketplace uh, near, uh, near where our people were living in Baghdad. Yeah. So he was standing there. Finally, some people came and said, who are you? He told them. He said, you know, originally my parents were from the village of Spurgan in Iran. They said, well, let's take you to some people from there. And they took him to the family of my wife's grandparents wow. who were from the same village? village. So they took him in and then he got a job with the British in a place called Hanedi next to Baghdad. And he said they used to wake up at like 4, 4.30 in the morning and walk because they lived on the other side of the river in Baghdad. And all the men and the other people that were working for the British, they'd walk all the way to where the British camp was, military camp. You know, they, it was so early in the morning that he'd fall asleep while he was walking. And every now and then he'd step, step into a ditch or something and fall down and get up and wake up and start walking again. And he was very resourceful. They first put him to paint roofs and these were corrugated metal roofs and in the summer of Baghdad that was terrible but somehow he had very beautiful handwriting he convinced them to let him paint the numbers on the different rooms they had in that camp so they saw his handwriting was good they gave it to him that's how he started working for the British and in fact he didn't know English he just learned while he was with them and then he says they had a contractor who was terrible and he kept a very dirty kitchen and there were, uh, you know, cockroaches and things. So the British officers didn't like it and they kicked him out. And I don't know how my father at that age, like around 18 or something, convinced them to let him be the contractor to cater for them. And they said, okay, let's give it a try. Yeah. And he went to the Kampilgilani where our people lived. And he asked around and he hired the person who they said is the best chef. He hired him and he said, you know, tell me where, where I can buy the best meat, the best. And so he started really bringing quality food and the British liked it. So he became a caterer and he continued to, to work for the British in that kind of capacity from different bases until after I was born. So when I was young, we only used to see him one month in a year. He would come and stay home with us, and then he'd go back again. How far was that distance between where he worked and where you... Actually, at lived? that time that I remember, he was working in Habaniya. Okay. Of course, Habaniya in those days took like four hours to get to Baghdad. By car? Now, yes because there were no uh, highways. Mm. Now there's a highway, and I, I was shocked to hear that people go from Baghdad to Habani in half an hour. There were a lot of Assyrians who worked for the British there. Yeah. In fact, there were some of those tough uh, soccer players developed, came from there, the ones that were the best soccer players in Iraq. The Assyrian soccer players? Yes. Yeah. They, almost all of them came from uh, Habaniya. So I grew up in Baghdad. I uh, went to high school at Jesuit school in Iraq, in Baghdad, which was called the Baghdad College. Was there a specific focus of the, the high school, the Jesuit high school? Not really. These were uh, Jesuit fathers from Boston. They had started that uh, university and it was the best uh, high school in the country. There I met a lot of the children of the wealthy Arabs and people from the government. They would send their children to go study there. So it was pretty prestigious then? It was very prestigious. It was the best 
high school in Iraq, we always had the best grades and the tests. How much do you think it costs to go there in, in, in today's dollars? I remember at that time, my father was paying 40 dinars per year in tuition. And at that time, 40 dinars was a lot of money. But at that time, I remember a dinar was equal to 3.2 pounds British. So 40 dinars was 120 British uh, pounds. pounds, yeah. At this time, if I do my math correctly, it's probably late 50s that you're in high school, early 60s? Yes, no, mid-50s. Mid-50s. So I finished in 1960. Tell us about the, the Assyrian community where you grew up in terms of social, political. You know, what happened is in 1948 when the, uh, there was a place in Baghdad where all, it was almost all inhabited by Jews. And then in 1948, they started leaving Iraq. So we were one of the first families that my father bought a house there. And then after that, my aunt, they also bought a house. And then you know how Assyrians are, then other people start coming and buying houses. It's like a domino effect. Yeah, before you know it, we had a community there. What area is this in Baghdad? It's called Betawin. Actually, it was called Bistan al-Khas. In Arabic, Bistan, and it's like Assyrian Bistan. Khas is uh, lettuce, yeah. yeah. What were some of your social activities back then as a teenager or early adult years? You know, we used to play in the street. <laughs> Although there was a children's park right in front of our house. But we didn't go into the park. We, we played soccer in the street, and we also played marbles. And just generally, we played together. Where does life take you after you finish Baghdad College? So I finished Baghdad College and I got uh, accepted at Kansas State University. Which is in Wichita? Manhattan, Manhattan Kansas. Kansas. Okay. That was the worst thing in my life. In what? fact, I'll tell you. In fact, I had a scholarship from the Iraqi government for six years to go to England. But my father said, no, I don't want you to go to England because he knew the British and he had gone there and he didn't like them. He said, I, want, I will send you at my own account. I'll pay for it, you go to America. And I'll never forget it. Before I left, all the families that were in that area, Assyrian families, they came to say goodbye to me. And invariably the father of that family would take me aside and start giving me uh, Whiz, like lex lecturing you some wisdom yeah, and parting some telling wisdom me what you. to do and what not to do so what what were they telling you to do and not do if you don't you know <laughs> when you when you go there don't drink and don't go out with the women you know live a clean life and always study hard and so on sounds like my parents <laughs> yeah but my father never said anything mm. so the night before i was going to leave he took me aside and he says son I've been listening to all those people giving you advice. I just want to tell you one thing. Remember what family you come from. So when you're there, anything that's going to bring shame to your family name, don't do it. Many times I used to stop and say, what if anybody knew who I am and this will bring shame to my family? So I wouldn't do it. One time I remember this is kind of off the subject and funny. The Manhattan, Kansas, it's the dry state. So there was one bar literally on the other side of the train tracks, which was a black African-American neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And they had a bar. So the students would go there and they would be open until there started a fight. Sooner or later, there'd be a fight and they'd say, okay, everybody out and they'd close the place. But there were no Assyrians there. There were Iraqis and other Arab students who we were friends. So when we finished, we, there was one car only among them. They said, okay, get in the car, let's go. I said, no, I don't want to, I'll walk back. Look, it's very far, I don't know what, no, no, no. How far are we talking? It was quite far. A mile and a half, maybe? Probably something like that. So they left, and I'm walking, and I'm a little bit dizzy from drinking. And I keep falling off of the sidewalk and then i figure okay if i go put my shoulder against the store windows and keep going that way i'll stay on the sidewalk i'd go put my shoulder there start walking and before i know that fall off the sidewalk again 
I'd get up and continue the same thing. That's when I thought, why don't I just lie on the sidewalk and take a nap and wake up, you know, so I will be awake. And as I started thinking that way, I thought, what will anybody, what will happen if anybody sees me lying on the sidewalk and know who I am? What what will they, they'll say, so-and-so's son was sleeping on the sidewalk in America. Even though there's no Assyrian in sight. No, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't lie down. I kept walking until I got to the room, Yeah. to my room that I was renting. How old were you when you enrolled at Kansas State? I was exactly 18. My birthday is August 27, and then September is when the school year started. I went there, but I saw discrimination that I had never experienced before. I was very outspoken. Pretty soon I started getting coverage in the new school newspaper and on the school radio. What was your, so it sounds like you, you, did, you excelled in school because you were being sent by the government to go to England, but then your father objected and decided to send you, send you on his own accord to Kansas State. But what were you studying? Or what were you engineering. Yeah. What, ta- what kind of engineering? Civil engineering. What was your intent? to study civil engineering? Not much. It's just that I had only one one older cousin. He's in San Diego now. And he was like seven years older than me. And he went into civil engineering and went to Baghdad University. Just based on that, I decided to become a civil engineer. And to be honest with you, I really didn't know what a civil engineer does because I never saw him working. <laughs> Somehow, for some reason, I thought that civil engineers design airplanes and I don't know what so I was thinking that's what I'm going to end up doing. Yeah. But obviously that was not that right. That changed pretty quick. Yeah. So you said you were on the radio at Kansas State. What was your platform? What were you advocating for? Mostly about discrimination. Okay. Because well, see there it was a very terrible I mean there was a census that they did among you could only live in university approved houses to rent a room because there was only one dormitory and you know american students would pay money to hold a place for their children like years in advance yeah so the only place was to rent a room and live and you could only rent a room university approved housing and then what happened is that there were a lot of American students. They'd rent all the good rooms, and then the rooms that nobody wanted to live in, they'd allow foreign students to live in them. I remember they asked, they went and had a questionnaire, and they found out that something like only 9% of the homeowners would rent to, to somebody who was not white. So that you could tell where the black homeowners. And then they found out that over 70%, I think something like 76% said they would not rent a room even to European students. So that's what we were facing. I mean, what made you advocate for and stand up for these people? Did you also experience prejudice while you were there? Yes, because like I said, we couldn't get any good rooms. I was living in a basement room that had, you know, the walls. They had mold all the way, like, to the middle of the middle of the height of the wall. But that's about the only, and we were paying more than what the American students were paying. In the student union, everybody had their own table. Like, there were two tables. They were for the African-American students. It's very segregated. Yes, and if you happened to sit at a table where there were Americans sitting on the table, they'd get up and leave. They wouldn't... They wouldn't. Uh, and this is this is during the time of the civil rights movement. Yes, and the, and, and exactly. America. And that's that's why I, I became active in the civil rights movement. In fact, there I was telling uh, Arbella earlier today. I think. Arbella is your daughter. Yes, there was a black student union there, and I was the only non-black who was allowed to become a member of the black student union. When Martin Luther King got killed, they had a rally. And I was the only one non-black who was invited to speak. Even the president of the university had asked to to speak, and they said no. But they had, you know, they allowed me to give a speech. I remember just the opening. I started by saying, they killed the king, and then they took candles and marched in the streets, supposedly in uh, to show sadness about his death, instead of re- realizing that they were the people who killed him to begin with. I was meaning the white students. And I remember I started writing articles in the newspaper. The student newspaper? Yes. And I would uh, refer to the 
white students as the natives. And they got very angry that I called them natives. And they said, you know, how dare you call us natives? I said, well, you come to our countries and call us natives. So I came here and I figured that's the proper English way to speak, yeah. that you are natives. But they were really upset with that. <laughs> so finally, there was an American guy who used, we talked together, and he came and he said, Lincoln, I talked to our fraternity, and we, I finally convinced them to let you to rush for the fraternity. I said, I don't want to live in a fraternity. And he said, what are you talking about? I mean, you'll have a good room, and uh, you can go out with sorority girls, and so on and so forth. I said, no, forget it, I'm not coming. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't just that he said, come and rush. He says, but we only have a few conditions. So what's the conditions? And he says, one of them is you stop writing in the newspaper about American students. And secondly, you stop sitting uh, on the tables for the black students. And also, you, you resign from the Organization of Arab Students. I said, I'm not going to do that. And he started telling me the benefits of uh, living in a fraternity. I said, yeah. forget it. Would you say that you, you were probably the most famous or popular student on campus? I don't know the most popular, but I did have some notoriety. How many years did you spend at Kansas Two State? years. And so then, it was a little short. Yes, and on the second year, I wrote to my parents. I said, this is the way they treat me. So my father sent me a letter and he said, son, you don't have to stay there. Why don't you just buy yourself a ticket and come back? So actually, I, I used to go for summer to stay with some relatives in Chicago. I was there, and I remember I asked the same cousin I was mentioning. I said to him, is there a place in this country that I can live that doesn't discriminate like this? He said, Lincoln, there's only one of two places. Either you go to New York or you go to Berkeley. I said, I'm not going to New York. I've had enough cold here in Kansas. I don't want to go to New York. We'll be cold again. So I applied to UC Berkeley and uh, went to Chicago, and I didn't hear from them. And I waited and waited and waited, and I didn't receive anything from them. So I actually bought a ticket to go back to Baghdad. If I remember, it was August 17. I received a letter from Berkeley accepting me as a student. So I returned my airline ticket, and then uh, uh, I had an old car. I drove it all the way and came to Berkeley. What kind of car was it? I don't remember, but it was like a second, third-hand car. <laughs> But it was good enough to get me from Chicago to here. You go to Berkeley, and this is 1962, yeah. 63. And, and I couldn't believe it that I could go into the student union and sit on any table I wanted. Uh, and the Berkeley. student, Yes, and students wouldn't get up and leave. And I was able to make friends among the American students. So I was really happy that I made that move. And then in 63, when I was still at Berkeley, my parents immigrated from Iraq. They came because my father got an American citizenship. See, my grandfather came to the United States three times, and in 2003, he what, naturalized. What was the purpose of your grandfather's visit? Three you visits. know, it was very common that when the weather was bad and there was not there, you know, they all had vineyards. And if the vineyards were not producing, then they would come over here and work for a year, two years, make some money and go back. Go back to? To North Iran, to okay. Urmi. So my mother's father came twice, and then he would go back. My father's father came one, three times, and on the third time, on 2003, he naturalized and got an American citizenship. So before I came here, my father had an unbelievable memory. He said to me, son, your grandfather became an American citizen. So when you go there, try to find out if you find his papers, maybe, you know, I can get passport to come America that way. Mm. So I came and in fact in Chicago I hired a lawyer and sure enough he found my grandparents, my grandfather's naturalization papers. I sent the applications to my father to apply and I remember he was approved to become an American citizen and the one who signed the, the letter of approval was uh, the Kennedy, not the president, the one, his other brother. Robert Kennedy? Robert Kennedy. He was the attorney general at that time. And so my father was told by the American embassy that your papers are here and you can get an American passport. Mm -hmm. He didn't want them to 
do it in, in Baghdad. He said, why don't you have them send the... Uh, no, he sent to me, he said, tell them to send the paperwork to Lebanon. I did, and then he took the family, went to Lebanon, and got his passport. And through his passport, my mother and sisters got a green card. And they came to the United States in 1963. And after I graduated, I went to Chicago, and I worked there as an engineer for four years. What year did you graduate Berkeley? 64. Okay, and then you moved to Chicago? Yeah, until 68. At the end of 1968, I decided I'm going to go back to California, but my parents would not agree to it. I applied and I got acceptance in Stanford. I told them I want to go to California to get a higher degree. So I went to Stanford and uh, for the first year, year and a half, I was doing very well because I was the only student they had who had actually practiced engineering. All the other students were the kind that just started, and they were continuing after their All bachelor's. Theory, no practical. Yeah. yeah. So the professors really liked me, mm-hmm. and they said, why don't you stay for a PhD? Because I told them I just want to take a master's. I remember there was an Indian professor, Professor Shah. He said to me, you know, I'm going to get you an assistantship. Stay here for a PhD. So he did get financial support. I started to study towards a PhD. But then the politics got in the way. And when the professors uh, in engineering got wind of what I was doing and saying and writing, yeah. uh, I remember the head of the department came and told me, he said, somebody with your politics is not going to get a degree from Stanford. So mm-hmm. I said, okay. I went to the president of the university and complained. And he said, no, 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 you can stay. Nobody's going to do anything to you. Yeah. But they withdrew the financial aid. When I was doing research on your background, I came across an article from the Stanford Daily. And the title of the article is, Panel Discusses Value on Lenin. And it's funny because you're quoted, they call you an Iraqi Marxist-Leninist as one of the the panel speakers arguing about, or, or, or speaking out favorably about Lenin. Yeah. You know, I had always been interested in philosophy and uh, theology. So when I came to Kansas, I had started reading books about uh, philosophy, and I was interested in uh, this philosopher called Kant and his polemics with the other philosophers. And then from there, I graduated, I came across the whole idea of idealism and then materialism by Feuerbach. So I liked uh, materialism as a philosophy better. So I started reading Feuerbach, and from there, I came across to Marx's writings. And that's when I decided that, yeah, I, you know, I decided that I support uh, dialectical materialism, which was what Marx was talking about. Then, like I told you, I started giving courses on Marxism. At Stanford? Yes. What was it about materialism that, that spoke to you about Marxism? What were some of the ideals that you really subscribed to? Well, that came much more when I started reading about Lenin okay. and the Russian Revolution. I was attracted to is that they were basically calling for organizing the people, the masses. And I liked that rather than just the abstract notions of Feuerbach and others. They were just talking about, you know, ideology and so on. And uh, that also drew the people from the Communist Party at that time. So they came and they were trying very hard, even after that, even after I came to Berkeley, they were trying to recruit me to join the Communist Party. And I rejected all of it. I wouldn't. The the Communist Party yeah, of... United States. Okay. You know, I remember I had meetings with uh, Angela Davis and some of the other leaders of the Communist Party. The big stumbling block was their uh, their position on the whole Palestinian question. The Communist Party has a very strong Jewish presence, even at the top leadership. So they've always had a very weird position on the whole question of Palestine and the Palestinians. So because of that, I told them, no, I'm not going to join. And also I had a bad, a bad uh, impression about the Iraqi Communist Party, because the Iraqi Communist Party supported everybody especially the Kurds, but they would never talk about Assyrian rights. Mm. And to me, you know, the thing that's been constant with me is Assyrian nationalism. Even when I was in high school and then later, that until today. So to me, even dialectical materialism to me was understanding a path 
for Assyrian rights and the struggle for Assyrian rights. So that's why, you know, the Iraqi Communist Party also, with their representatives here in Detroit and so on, have tried very many times to recruit me, and I always told them, I will consider it when you tell me what your position on, on the Assyrian people is. So you say that Assyrian rights were always a constant in, yes. in your life, you know, in the 60s and 70s when you were politically involved and outspoken. Yes. Did you ever try to organize Assyrians in the 60s and 70s? No, because at Stanford I was the only Assyrian. Mm. And even in San Francisco here there weren't that many. Back in those days? Yes. So on May 19th, the Stanford Daily, May 19th, 1970, the Stanford Daily also wrote another article, and it says, Radicals break more windows, seven arrested for prior protests. And I think you were involved in one yes. of those... Yes, I was also arrested. I went to court, but I couldn't afford a lawyer. <laughs> so I got a so I got a public defender who was actually a Jewish guy who had joined the People to People program. Mm. I think th that was the one that uh, Kennedy started, and he went to Morocco and worked there in Morocco for like four or five years. Came back and he did a very good job. And the thing was that the there were these uh, Republican students. They used all would put a blue button on their lapel, so we used to call them the blue, the blue buttons. So they really wanted. I mean, they really hated me. I heard you used to prank your conservative professors. Not the professors, but the one that I pranked the most was uh, Hewlett of Hewlett Packard because he was a trustee of the university of St at Stanford University. Mm. And one time, he came to give a speech, and I was there. There were some radical students. They got up, asked him questions, and he was very mean and ugly and called them all kinds of names. So I got up to ask a question, and the moderator said, who do you want to ask a question? I said, I want to ask a question to this very crude person there that keeps calling students bad names. So anyway, so I asked him a question. I don't remember what it was. When the word went out, some of the professors were really upset. Like I said, they came and told me, you know, a person with your politics will never get a PhD here. So I said, okay. And I went and talked to that professor, Shah. And he said, Lincoln, if you listen to me, Stanford has used to have a degree in between a master's and a PhD called engineer's degree, where you wrote a thesis, but you didn't have to do research. They said, Lincoln, you have all the coursework necessary. Why don't you write a thesis, get an engineer's degree, and go somewhere else? I said, okay, that's good advice. And that's what I did. I wrote a, a thesis, and they gave me an engineer's degree. And in the meantime, I applied to, to Berkeley for a PhD, and they accepted me. When I got my PhD, I took a copy of the of my degree and on it wrote, I won on both counts. Our side won the war and I graduate from a university much better than the one that you guys are running. Wow. And I sent it to that head of department. <laughs> I want to take you back to Kansas State, along, along your educational path, Kansas State, Berkeley, Stanford, and then back to Berkeley. Did anyone ask you, Lincoln, you're from Iraq, but what are you? No, it was clear I was a Syrian. It was clear to even your peers, the people that you protested Yes, with. yes. In fact, I made certain that uh, they all knew that I'm an Assyrian and tell them who we are, what we are, and what our situation is. And No, that was something that was constant with me. Tell me about your work with the Palestinians. From the very beginning, I mean, in Iraq, we were really brought up to hate Jews. Was this your parents? Or the, the Everybody, that the was, no, 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 it was school, the parents, the society. I, I knew a couple of Jews in Iraq that lived in the street that I was growing up in. But they were ostracized. I mean, we never, we never became friends with them. Hmm. And the whole country, we really grew up with hatred of Jews. So when I came here, I always had an inquisitive mind. I kept thinking, how did they get to get all the support that they get? 
So the last summer that I was still at Stanford, I went to Hoover Institution and I just spent the whole summer reading anything I could find about the Jewish question. And for our listeners, what is the Hoover Institution? That's actually a, a library. It's a repository for all of the State Department uh, documents that have to do with Israel. And Berkeley, on the other hand, is the repository for everything that has to do with the Arab countries. So I used, you know, it was just a big library. So I used to go there, check out books and read and study everything I could about the Jewish organizations. How did they organize? How did they get the support that they did? To establish a a state. And uh, to me, the objective was to learn what they did so that we can do the same thing for our Syrian people. But in doing that study, I was not only reading things that were pro-Zionist, I was also reading things that were anti-Zionist. From Jewish writers? Some Jewish and some not, but some of them were uh, like Communist Party members or uh, radical Jews. So through that, I got really to understand the whole issue of Palestine and the Palestinians. And I felt an affinity that they were facing the same kind of thing that was done to us. We were, you know, we had genocide and we were basically forced out of our homeland, just like the Palestinians had. So it was natural thing for me to be, to support the Palestinians. And at that time, I ended up uh, getting introduced to the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine which calls itself a Marxist-Leninist organization. And this was in Berkeley? Were you? In- no, I was in Stanford at that time. Okay. And I read some of their writings, and I was very attracted to that. So I started organizing in the Palestinian... Com- After I came to Berkeley, I started to doing intensive work with the Palestinian community in San Francisco because there was a newspaper published in Lebanon that uh, was a radical newspaper called Al-Hurriya, which means freedom. So I used to get copies of that. And then I had these pins with colored round heads. Yeah, push pins? Yeah, push pins. So I had pins, red and blue. And I found the addresses of all of the grocery stores in San Francisco because they were all Palestinian. So I had read to all of the ones that I used to go to and give them that magazine and sell it to them and blew on the ones that I had not gotten there yet. Mm. So, yeah, I did that for, like, a couple of years. What was your intent in helping the, the PLO, or the group that you were involved with? Yeah, the Democratic Front. Basically, was to organize and get support for them, mostly money. But I also organized cells. It was interesting because some of them were... Uh, people who had been members of the Communist Party in Jordan. And then when they heard me talking and some of the words that I would use things, they would come and befriend me. And then I started organizing them into cells. Yeah. Did you ever do anything that was clandestine? No. Collecting money for the Palestinian resistance was not exactly what the American government wanted. Yeah. So in that respect, yeah, I I mean, I did attract. And in fact, I remember when uh, I was at Cal, and I started becoming very uh, vocal about our own Assyrian issues. I was reading an article that you wrote. It's titled Strategy for Leadership, a Progressive and Pragmatic Program by Dr. Lincoln Mather. And this is available on author.com and I'll also put it in the show notes as well. But you do mention a lot of interesting points. I'll quote you here. It says, a more common, most wishful solution is the quest to find benefactors who will grant us our rights. Today, it is more likely to be the United Nations or the U.S. Department. The world is full of peoples and nations whose rights are denied illegally. 20 million South Africans have just now gained the right to vote in their homeland. So the question to you, Lincoln, are we still in the age of finding benefactors who will grant us our rights? Is it still the United Nations or the U.S. State Department? None of that. In fact, I was talking with my daughter, Arbella, today. And earlier with my wife, Emma, I was telling them, rights are never granted. You have to struggle for them. It's one thing, once you start struggling for your rights, then you can ask others to help you and get aid, whether it is from United Nations or other countries, other political groups. That is something that's feasible. But to sit around and wait just to say, you know, we can tell people how bad we've been treated and they will support us and grant us our rights. I don't believe that. I think that's a fantasy. Mm. 
because there are so many oppressed people in the world and groups and nobody's rushing to go give them their rights. Yeah. It's only when they fight for their rights that people will come in and support you. And that's something that we have to learn to do. How do our people fight for their rights? I believe that to struggle for your rights, you have to organize. And to organize, you have to have a very well-defined objective and a leadership that's going to gain the support and the trust of the people. And then you organize them to that, you know, you, you have to have a realistic objective because the worst thing to do is to lead your people behind some pie in the sky. And that's where I think a lot of our early political organizations missed the point. And they thought, you know, if we just tell people how badly we've been treated and if we ask for the maximum, people all around the world are going to come rushing to help us gain those rights. And that's just not the way this world works. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to have very clear objectives and start organizing our people. You know, one thing that I've learned from my work in the past, I remember when, whenever I've tried to raise funds, whether it was for the, from the Palestinians for the Palestinian movement or later among our Assyrian people for Zawa, the biggest fantasy is where people think that if we just go after the rich people, convince them, they'll turn around and donate big money. And doesn't that work that way at all? I have found that it's the poor people and the simple people that will come and donate whatever they can. And you can build a movement from them. I remember when I was working to raise money for Zawa, there were old women in Turlock and Modesto that were on welfare. And they would insist they would come in and insist that I take $3 from them. Yeah. And I keep saying, no, 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 yeah, take them. Mm. So it was amazing. Yeah. That's been my experience throughout. Many listeners out there don't know that you were one of the, the founders of the Assyrian Aid Society of America as well as the Assyrian Democratic Movement in the United States and Canada as well. What, was your, what were you achieving by creating these entities or replicating them here in the United States? Trying to support them back home. Financially? Every way we could. Financially, or I also used to go to the State Department, support them any way we could. Hmm. Yeah, I remember Assyrian Aid Society when, when the Saddam's army went into North Iraq. What year was this? The 90s? Early 90s? Or before? Yeah, it was, I think it was early 90s. And then there was a lot of Kurds from northern Iraq and a lot of our people. They all fled into Turkey. And I remember at that time, Yunadam Kenna, who's now the Secretary General of the of Zawa, he called me. He, he happened to have been out of Iraq and he called me long distance. And he said, just before that, I remember I had raised, I had collected $700 in Chicago from our people and I had sent it to them. So I said, Lincoln, what are you guys doing? Right now, the only thing is those $700, I bought some tarp and we're putting our people because it's raining here day and night. And we're burying actually old people getting sick and children. So what are you going to be doing? And that's when I realized, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll start collecting money. But that's when I realized that we cannot just every now and then go and start collecting money. That has to be an organized process. I had done the same thing by establishing the for the Palestinians. So I actually took their bylaws and changed them to bylaws for the Assyrian Aid Society wow. and registered it and start collecting money so that it would be a, an organized fashion. Do you think there's still value in having politi Assyrian political parties branches in, in the Americas, in Australia, in Canada, in Europe? You know, all along uh, with the Zawa in the past and now with the other political groups in Iraq, Assyrian, that have approached me, I keep telling them we should not have members. We should have supporters. Because when you establish membership, you attract some people who just want to show up. I mean, when I was working with the Assyrian Democratic Movement, Zawa, you know, we had those pins, lapels from Zawa. Well, there were a lot of these guys who wanted to show off in the community. All they wanted was the pin, so they could put it up and go around and say, yeah, I'm a member of Zawa. And they offered the least. They were the least in terms of working and doing things. So I kept telling them, 
let's have an organization of supporters. So when somebody like that comes along, people won't be blaming us that here people are trying to help. But invariably these groups back home, they keep wanting to have members because they think that way they can control the organization. I was to blame for that because that's exactly what happened. When I left Zawa, I left alone. None of the people that I had organized left with me. And that was not my purpose anyway. What was it that attracted you about the Assyrian Democratic Movement, about Zawa? You know, when I read their uh, political program, it was the first time that I was reading an Assyrian organization that had a progressive political program. And what were they, and succinctly, what were they asking for? What were they demanding? You know, even their slogan was recognition of the Assyrian presence, meaning in Iraq, and building a democratic Iraq. So it was a progressive slogan. Were you recruited or did you willingly? No, actually it was the other way around. I had read about them again in that Cuban magazine that I mentioned to you. They had written that there's a progressive group in Iraq called the Syrian Democratic Movement. What was the name of the Cuban magazine? I don't remember now. Hmm. It was one of those things that their program of uh, tri-nationalism or something like this. Yeah. But then I kept trying to find contact with that organization and I couldn't find any. I was giving a speech and uh, I mentioned Zawa and I mentioned, you know, the struggle for our people. So afterwards they came and told me, this guy came and told me, he said, I worked with Zawa before I came to America. Great, do you have any contact? Yes. So he's the one who gave me their uh, political program and I read it and I was even more excited. So he called actually at that time in Adam Kenna again because he was in Urmi. Do you know why he was in Urmi at the time? Yeah, he had fled from Iraq. From He had fled the regime? Yeah. In 1984, three Assyrian martyrs, Yubert, Yosef, and Yuhanna, were executed by the Ba'ath regime in Iraq. What was the reaction of the Assyrians living in America? It was almost non-existent. In fact, I didn't learn about them until after I joined Zawa. And I heard later that in Chicago, they had had a demonstration and marched down the street. In your opinion, what has been the biggest detriment to our nation in the past 100 years? The worst thing that has happened to our nation is the fragmentation that was pushed by the churches that have destroyed the unity of our people. And we're still suffering from it and we will suffer with it for a long time because these churches not only have pitted us against each other, they're not going to change that. That will continue to be this situation, especially because religion has such an important role in our communities. This becomes a reason for them to oppose each other. I think that's the worst detriment that has happened to our people. What is the difference of an Assyrian calling themselves indigenous versus an Assyrian calling themselves a minority? You know, that's a very, very important distinction because indigenous people, that means we have a right to that land. But struggling for it is going to be very difficult because of the fact that we have been reduced to a minority through sheer genocide. And we're not alone in that respect. Take a look at the Native Americans in the in, in this country. When the white people came, they just went on a very systematic in a very systematic manner of genocide against those people. The ones that they killed, they killed. The Native Americans had no immunity against smallpox because that disease was not here. And what they would do is they would get blankets and smear them with pus and things that people get from small parks and give it to them. And then they would, this thing would just spread throughout their community and they had no resistance against it and they'd die. So, I mean, genocide took a lot of different forms. Mm -hmm. And look at the end, what they've done. They've collected them all and threw them into the desert. Yeah. In uh, Nevada and New Mexico and so on. And that's very similar to what's happened to us. They have committed genocide, reduced our numbers to where now we're hoping that we can be all collected into the Nineveh plain. So in that respect, we are not alone and we have to learn from what has happened to other people. So right now, we have to really have a program of collecting our people. Just today I was reading about what's happening in Syria 
and the Turks are threatening to go into the area east of the Euphrates. That's where a lot of our people are living. The question is, what happens there? If we start on a program, I don't want to do another Assyrian aid society type thing. Well, I'm thinking that what we should do in the diaspora, we should collect money and then go back there and have a holding company. So any of our people who want to sell their land or their home, instead of letting them sell it to Turks or Kurds, we should buy it and then give it to some of our people, whether they are from Syria, from Urmi, or from Iraq. Give it to them with a very low rent, just so that we will maintain a physical presence in the Nineveh plain and that we own land. Because if we do, then we can, even as a minority, we can struggle for recognition like the Iraqis recognize the Kurds. We should also struggle if we have that presence in the Nineveh plain with both property and people. The next step is we demand that the Iraqi government recognize us just like they recognize the Kurds. You know, because the Nineveh plain is a very, very strategic area. I think How that. So? Well, I think that not just me, I think the Kurds and the Arabs in Iraq also know that sooner or later those two are going to have to fight it out. The Arabs are not going to concede all of North Iraq to the Kurds, especially the way the Kurds are treating it, as basically a separate entity of their own. Any war that happens between the Kurds and the Arabs, the path for the Arabs to get into Kurdistan, I hate that word, the pathway for Arab troops, Iraqi troops, to get into North Iraq is either through the Nineveh plain or from around Kirkuk. Through Kirkuk, it's all mountainous, very difficult. The Kurds want to control it, to make sure that that will be their front lines, and the Arabs want to control it because they don't want the Kurds to have a front line secured against any incursion into North Iraq. And I think that that's something that we should recognize, that that is a critical area in, in the future of Iraq. And if we're able to establish ourselves there, I think we will have a strong negotiating point. We're not going to take sides with either one. I don't think we will ever want to join with the Arabs against the Kurds or join the Kurds against the Arabs because both of those will sell us out without any problem to get at the other. Lincoln, we have listeners from all over the world. What is something that you would like to impart to them? I would like all our people to call on themselves to have a dedication to work in an organized fashion for our people in the homeland. It's a shame for us to let Kurds or Arabs buy properties in the Nineveh plain. We should buy them and keep them under our control for our people. I mean, that's the least that those of us that have left can do. Once we establish our presence there in a material fashion with numbers of people and ownership of land and houses, we can then get to the task of demanding recognition, both in the Iraqi constitution and also on the ground. There is no other way. Otherwise, if we all just become 10 here, 50 there, all around the world, then there's no future left for us. And that would be the biggest betrayal if we allow that to happen. And that's something that we should not allow. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody for listening to this episode in its entirety. We appreciate you all. A reminder that if you have not subscribed yet to the podcast, you can do so using pretty much any podcast app on your smartphone. Also, check out AssyrianPodcast.com. There's a list of the more recent episodes up there for you if you need some catching up to do. And you can also read more about the team. As always, we do this because of you, for you, and we appreciate all the support and all the listens week in, week out. And we'll be back next week with more good Assyrian Podcast content.